Welcome everyone to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and I'm joined as normal by Carrie Smith. Carrie, say hello. Hi, Carter. Today, Carrie and I are very honored to have Chris Ann Hall with us on the show. Chris Ann is an Army veteran, a constitutional lawyer, and the president of Liberty First University. She travels the country teaching the foundational principles of liberty and our constitutional republic. She's the author of six books on the Constitution and Bill of Rights, and has a nationally syndicated radio show and a cable television show. She's been featured on C-SPAN TV and C-SPAN Book TV. Uh, you can follow her at chrisannhall.com. That's K-R-I-S-A-N-N-E-H-A-L-L.com. Chrisann, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. So maybe we should just jump right into this. Um, <laughs> I heard that you were at church when your pastor was arrested, cited, I'm not exactly sure what, for violating the shelter-in-place orders in Florida. Can you talk about that for a moment? Well, it didn't actually happen in the church service. It happened, our, our pastor was arrested Monday morning okay. uh, uh, after the church service in, for violating the uh, well allegedly violating the safer the Hillsborough County safer at home order which has since then been changed to uh, recognize churches as an essential service so I, I guess I'm as a non-constitutional lawyer not even a lawyer uh, it's confusing to me where the municipalities and states are where they stand legally with respect to the ability to just suspend constitutional rights because of a virus, which is, you know, I'm not one of these people who say it's the flu, but on the other hand, this isn't the zombie apocalypse. It's not like, you know, right. Uh, exactly. <laughs> right. So what's the, what's the constitutionality here? Well, uh, good constitutional attorneys would argue, those who are knowledgeable about the Constitution and are not strictly uh, in, in subordinate submission to precedent, would, would tell you that the whole purpose of a Bill of Rights and the whole purpose of enshrining rights as, as inalienable, recognizing them as natural, uh, prohibits government from infringing upon them. That's why the whole phrase shall not be infringed isn't there. And so there really is no exception within those rights to infringe upon these, uh, these natural, these inherent, what our founders called inalienable rights by government whatsoever. From a legal standpoint, the laws that are imposed cannot be arbitrary, they cannot be capricious, and they have to be they have to be enforced on secular activities in the same way that they were enforced upon religious activities. And that's just simply not happening. When you can have a drive-through open uh, at, at McDonald's, when you can have your grocery store open and Costco open and Lowe's open, and we even here in Florida have Michael's Craft Store open, and they are deemed essential services with little to no governance over them whatsoever other than recommendations. And yet you have a church, for example, our church, which practiced social distancing between families. Uh, our greeters wore gloves and had a hand sanitizer for everybody that came in the door. Plus, 
the church purchased over $100,000 worth of medical-grade air purifying equipment that is used by FEMA and by the Department of Defense to all aid into, in keeping our people uh, healthy. Uh, those things are not taking place in the grocery stores and the, and the hardware stores and the craft stores, and yet the laws in Hillsborough County created a situation where our pastor going above and beyond where the grocery stores are going actually caught engaging in an activity that is enshrined in both the, the Florida Constitution and the U.S. Constitution as essential inherent rights was treated as a criminal and people who go to the grocery store are not, and the managers of the grocery stores are not. If you're going to be, you know, a direct correlation, then the managers of the grocery stores ought to be arrested the same as our pastor. And what's even more egregious to the whole thing is that the sheriff that arrested our pastor at the announcement of the whole COVID restrictions let over 170 people out of the county jail, convicted criminals out of the county jail, to prepare for COVID restrictions. And one of the guys that he let out had a rap sheet years long, and the day after he was let out of jail, he murdered someone. So our sheriff uh, let murderers, convicted, violent fel uh, criminals out of our jail, and then proceeded to arrest our pastor for engaging in a right that is inherently an inalienable our possession. Kristen, can I? Pretty depressing can, outlook on yeah. the state of the United States. <laughs> I've, I've been seeing stories from across the country of um, people being arrested and or fined for uh, yard sales, for, um, you know, just going about their everyday life. And I'm finding that in discussions with people online, which is never the best place to have a discussion, <laughs> uh, that a lot of people, adults, and, and myself included, I, I will admit, I've, I've been pretty ignorant about the Bill of Rights until the past year or so, um, but I'm finding that a lot of adults are really ignorant about the Bill of Rights, and when you talk about um, the, the right of, of a person to go out and to provide for their family, they want to know what what you where where is that in the constitution what rights are we talking about what is the what rights does the bill of rights um ensure for us and how does that differ from their their um claimed right not to get sick which is not an actual right yeah well it's it's interesting because there are certain things that the that the the people who wrote and ratified our constitution and our bill of rights took for granted and that might be something that, that we are amiss of today. And essential to life, essential to the right to life, is the right to provide for that life. Our, the drafters and, and those who ratified our Constitution fought a battle. You know, our forefathers and foremothers fought a battle to become independent from kings, not just simply from you know, Great Britain, but from kings themselves. We could have easily become the kingdom of America. There were people who were begging George Washington to be king. 
But we knew that having a kingly rule where the king and the government, the central government dictates to you what you can do, where you can work, how you can live, how you can manage your land is not freedom, is not liberty. And so in removing ourselves from a kingdom style government and establishing us as a constitutional republic, it was in efforts to ensure the property rights of the people. And one of the things that we miss when we, we either fail to study the Bill of Rights at all, or we, or we study them errantly, as most of our textbooks and even our law schools these days, is the understanding of the fifth, Fourth and Fifth Amendments. And so the Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects shall not, um, uh, from unreasonable searches and seizures, shall not be violated. And, and in that Fourth Amendment, it describes that a reasonable search and seizure is one where there is a warrant based upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation, particularly describing the place to be searched or the persons or things to be seized. In that definition of property, as understood by the people who wrote the Fourth Amendment, one of them being James Madison, who wrote an entire essay titled property, explaining what property meant at the time. In, in, in the definition of property is the, is the property of every person to use their faculties and their skills and their resources to provide for their families to secure their life. And so we miss that, that understanding that property is more than your cell phone. Property is the, is the inherent right to use your skills and your resources to provide for, the, for those things essential to life. And the other thing is that the Fifth Amendment in, enshrines the fact that the government cannot take property for public purposes without due process and just compensation. So both the Fourth and Fifth Amendments together explain to us that property is an essential right of the individual person that cannot be infringed, cannot be removed without proper due process. And when our governments go in and shut our businesses down, even though it's temporary, that is a regulatory taking of our property, and we are entitled by natural right to due process in that, and compensation, just compensation, not $1,200 from the federal government, but just compensation, because that's that $1,200 is penance to people who are losing their livelihoods to these draconian, irrational, and arbitrary regulations by government. And that's what we need to understand. When the grocery store and the craft store can remain open, but then the government says, eeny, meeny, miny, mo," you have to stay closed. That is arbitrary, and it is capricious because the science does not support uh, the opening of the grocery store, and it does not support the closing of any other store. So where does this idea come from? What's the justification for classifying certain activities as, quote, essential and other activities as non-essential? Where does the, what, are, what are the proponents of this pointing to? Well, I would suggest to you that there are two, two sources for this enforcement. Number one, fear. Fear itself is irrational and unreasonable. 
Anybody, any psychologist, any psychiatrist will tell you that when people are motivated by fear, their responses uh, are quite often and most likely irrational and unreasonable. So what you have is the massive body of people being fed misinformation and, and it's causing them to react irrationally and unreasonably. I mean, if you look at the facts regarding COVID and the facts of every other flu season, you see that this virus is, is not actually uh, a, a deadlier virus than every other flu season. As if you look at the flu vi season of 2018, 2018 uh, deaths are, are way outnumbering the COVID deaths now. Not only that, the surrendering of our rights for a temporary relief of this fear is also irrational and unreasonable because history and reason both tell us and understanding in government that when we surrender rights to people in power, they don't relinquish them voluntarily. So once people in power have power, they don't just simply, okay, my bad, it's over, we can have it back. Proof of this is the fact that we are now watching, we, we've come to the point in many of our states where the announcements are, the, the, the infection rate is plateauing, a lot of them are even seeing declines, and instead of restoring our rights, we now have governors establishing uh, uh, committees to determine how to restore our rights. And that is just more evidence on how, you know, once power is obtained, it doesn't, it isn't easily relinquished. So the one source is fear. The other source is greed. Greed of power, greed of money, greed of control. Arbitrary application of laws is one of the most obvious and most noteworthy uh, indications of power-hungry, control-hungry people. And that's why we have, over the years and over history, determined that arbitrary laws are uh, unjust, unreasonable, and a danger to the rights of the people. I have a, a fear about... Um speaking of fear, one of my fears is, is, is what this is going to do, uh, what it's going to do to future generations, because I think we've, we've now taught an entire generation of kids that this is okay, and this is normal, and I can't imagine being a child right now, and this being, a, being baked into what I view as being um, something that happens in the United States. Well, I would suggest to you that that fear has been break baked into the minds of people for a long time. Uh, the evidence of that is the overwhelming number of people in America who are operating under that fear, contrary to their own good and their own rights. I can show you in history where we stopped teaching the Constitution properly in the year 1833. I can also show you that our the the uh, idea, the understanding of limited government and rights of the people was inserted into our public school system in the mid-1800s, our entire quote-unquote progressive education system in the public school system is geared to teaching our people that government needs more power and government knows best what's for people. 
That is completely antithetical to everything that American was established on. America's principal cornerstone of government is self-governance, not governing government and those in power ruling over us and dictating to us what's good and what's bad. And so we are where we are today because for at least 150 years in our public school systems, we've been training people to be docile, obedient subjects to a government who is able to assume any power they want to assume. Instead of teaching why we gained our independence, what we were fighting for, what the Constitution actually means, what our states are supposed to stand for, we have created a socialist uh, obedient people to every and any government's demand, especially when they sprinkle that with the seeds of fear. I'm I'm going to interpret that as an excellent argument against public education. <laughs> um, so well, we maybe, are homeschool parents. So I, in all good. full disclosure, we are homeschool parents, and uh, our son will never go to government school as long as we are living and breathing. And uh, we, we decided that from day one. And for parents who, who feel like they don't have the opportunity to make that kind of decision, although most parents are, are, are forced to homeschool now, which is quite ironic, uh, we as parents need to understand that the responsibility of the education of our children doesn't begin and end in the classroom. It begins and ends at the home. So as a homeschool parent, I can tell you there's not a single curriculum that I agree with 100%. So as a parent who's, by the way, I, I may be strange, but I think that I have a greater responsibility to raising my child as a responsible, educated, and moral adult than I do to any other function that I have in society. And so that is my chief and most high job. And in doing that, I have to make sure what my child is learning is right and true according to the principles that my family holds to be right and true. And if that means that my child goes to, to a government school and I have to teach my child that what they're teaching in the government school is wrong, then that's good. I mean, that's fine. That's what you should be doing. You see, I have an article on my website, chrisannhall.com, called Stolen Education, Stolen Children, Stolen Future. And it's really an extract from a book by a woman named Charlotte Iserbit, who wrote a book called The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. And it's a timeline of the Marxist takeover of our education system, using the original words of the men who created this system. And it was their intent, and I'm roughly quoting because I don't have it in front of me, to create a docile and obedient society that is uh, molded by the hands of those who are in charge. These are the words of the people who created our education system. And I have raised my child, much to my own chagrin at times, that we must be a people that is willing and carries the courage and the boldness to question authority in all circumstances. Yeah, and, and it's really important with kids because every action you take with children has a magnified effect because when you, it, there's a lot of leverage with raising a child, right? Because any any little thing that you teach them, 
gets magnified for the rest of their life. That's how they, that's going to have profound consequences. Um, well, that's why the parents have to be involved because there has to be a, a constant temperance. That's where the morality comes in. You have to teach your child that all things are good in moderation and, and that questioning authority is good, but uh, you know, we have to be wise when we do those kinds of things. I've had people tell me that my philosophy that we must question authority is, is an expression of anarchy. No, it's not an expression of anarchy. I'm not saying we should have no government at all. Anarchy is not even a stable form of society. It's, it's a political transition from organized government to uh, either tyranny or a different kind of organized government. So uh, anarchy is a transitional stage. It's not a permanent style of government. We are not designed as human beings to live without external rules. We just simply can't do it. And no society has ever succeeded in, in maintaining that. And so what we, the healthy questioning of authority is the check and balance on those in charge. And that's what we've lost. We've become a docile people who believe the only, the only thing we need to do to control government is to vote. And voting is not how we control government. What we do every other day when we're not at the ballot box is how we control government. So maybe we can, uh, maybe we can jump into some history. You can correct me on some history here because um, I, my my grasp of this is vague, but my understanding about the Bill of Rights is that the arguments, many of the arguments over whether or not to include the Bill of Rights did not center around whether those rights should be recognized, but rather on whether if they were enumerated, they would be interpreted as the, the entirety of the rights. And that was the concern that actually, no, 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 people had all of these, like all of these and more. And if we only list these, then people might interpret that as these are the only ones and there's a lot more. Um, can you talk about kind of the, the origin of the Bill of Rights and what was meant um, by, by including it? You know, that's really interesting because I have my online training called libertyfirstuniversity.com and I have an entire course on that question called the great debate and what you have outlined is half of the argument and i and in that argument uh both alexander hamilton and james madison reference in the debate for the bill of rights the other half of the argument is best articulated in a letter called the letter from the federal farmer to the republican number six and in that letter uh, the writer, whom most scholars believe is uh, a man named Richard Henry Lee, who was a member of the First Continental Congress. He was also a delegate from the state of Virginia on the ratification of the Constitution. But um, in that letter, number six, he explains why we must have a Bill of Rights. And as he explains why we must have a Bill of Rights, in that explanation, we learn the purpose and the principle of the Bill of Rights. So what I, what I notice, just as a sort of side note for people who are interested in studying this depth of history, if you're simply studying the Federalist Papers, you're missing the other half of the argument. It's like, it's like having a phone, listening to somebody else on the phone, right? So all you hear is this. You don't hear what's going in the ear. And so what we do at Liberty First University is we give you both sides of the argument so that you can see the rationale on why they moved forward and what they did. And just briefly, the letters, letter number six explains that 
yes, the argument is right. We don't need to have a Bill of Rights to limit government. So that's the first thing we need to understand. Alexander Hamilton, as the Federalist writer, explains that the Constitution itself is the limit on government because we have specifically enumerated the powers to those in the federal government. They're not allowed to do anything unless it's specifically enumerated. So a power that is exercised that is not enumerated is a stolen, unauthorized, unconstitutional power. So the uh, Federalist argument was, why do we have to tell them not to do something when we've never authorized them to do something in the first place? Right. The anti-Federalist argument, as, as best articulated in Federalist, uh, I'm sorry, in the letter number six, says, we, don't, we are not creating a Bill of Rights to limit the federal government. That is not the purpose. The purpose of the Bill of Rights is to be, as he called it, a sentinel, a visible barrier constantly seen by all so that the people will never forget what their inherent inalienable rights are and that the people will be the greatest check and balance on their government. He said that over time, we know from human nature and history and government that people get consumed in their own lives. They get involved in their own, in their own circles of, of life, and they forget to keep in touch with what's going on in government. So what we need is something in writing to remind the people of what their inherent inalienable rights are, to be a warning to them to stand up and say to the government, no, you can't go that far. The letter says we need these, this list as a reminder for those, quote, unavoidable intervals of inattentiveness, end quote because history shows that people will become pacified in prosperity, they'll become lazy in luxury, they'll become complacent and compliant in their comfort. And he says in the letter six that when that happens, they will forget to look at the enumerated limits in the Constitution itself. So we need an additional reminder to them specifically what their rights are. Now, in the course, I explain that Madison, during the ratification debates, says that Hamilton's argument of why do we have to tell them what to do when we've already uh, told them not what, what they cannot do when we've only told them what they can do. Hamilton even continues and says, what about the, the liberty of the press? Should we tell them that they're not to infringe on the liberty of press when we've never authorized them to have anything at all to do with press, he says, what will happen is, and this is the argument that you were talking about, he says, what will happen then is that the government will use this as a foothold to say, okay, you've told us not to infringe on the freedom of press, but we're confused as to what press actually is. So what we need to do is to define press so we know not how to infringe upon press. And Hamilton says the very definition of press by government is the infringement of that right. And you're opening the door, he says, for men disposed to usurp. And Madison, during the ratification debates, explains that Hamilton's argument is very, very good. 
We have to make sure. But he also recognizes that the letter number six argument is very important. We must recognize the, the weaknesses of human nature. And so how do we codify these rights, right? How do we go ahead and make a list without somebody saying, okay, then all you have is what's on that list? How do we codify that list and end the argument that they're allowed to regulate that list, right? And Madison says during the ratification debates that he's proposed a solution to this question. And what's interesting is the solution to this question was ratified in the Bill of Rights. And in ratifying the, answer, the solution to that question, they created, in my humble opinion, the most important section of the entire Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And most people have no idea what it is. And I just, you know, to let everybody know, it's the Ninth Amendment. It says, the enumeration of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, which is the solution. We wrote them down, which doesn't give you the right to deny them, doesn't give you the right to disparage them, regulate them, right? But because we wrote them down doesn't mean that's all of them. There are others as well. And so because we have failed to teach the Bill of Rights, because we failed to teach the discussion, we have an errant understanding of why, of the purpose and the principles of the Bill of Rights, and it just simply breeds confusion. Yeah, so it certainly does. I have a, um, it's not every day that I get to talk to a constitutional lawyer, <laughs> well, <laughs> an I, expert. I hope that I'm not, you know, turning this too much into a classroom. No, I no, love this. Is this. Perfect. This is perfect. I'm already just excited about sharing this with our audience because I'm, I'm kind of blown away. I just texted my boyfriend. This is one of the best interviews we've done. <laughs> so thank you. You're texting in class, Carrie. I do. This is like 31stuniversity.com. This is not some stodgy law professor speaking over your head in Latin. What I no, do take these things and I bring them in the way our founders wanted us to teach them so that everybody can understand how simple the principles and application of the Constitution really are. We have been deceived for so long by the academic elite that, to, that, we are in, that it's impossible for you know, the peons to understand the Constitution, so most people are even afraid to try. What we're trying to do is bring this education back into the hands of the people because we need to know the power that we hold. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you. Nothing you're saying is, uh, it's just, it's knowledge that I don't have, but it's not over anyone's head. And I often find that in these kind of conversations, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, people who um, purposefully try to obfuscate what they're saying or the, try and hide the fact that they're not really saying anything by using a lot of jargon and, and speaking in circles. And that's not what you're doing. You're speaking very plainly in a way that, that helps people to understand what the Bill of Rights is all about. So I have uh, a, a question for you since I don't always get off to get to talk to a constitutional lawyer. Uh, I saw this quote, just to bring it back to this, this crisis that we're in now. I saw this quote from Governor Cuomo yesterday and a lot of my friends were sharing this and are like, yeah, right on. I think the comedian Patton Oswalt shared it and said, you know, right on. It's, quote, this is from Governor Cuomo. It's not about your life. You don't have the right 
to risk someone else's life. And you don't have the right, frankly, to take a healthcare staff and people who are literally putting their lives on the line and be cavalier or reckless with them, end quote. What is he not, what is he getting wrong there about the word right? Well, because here, well, here's first the understanding. Uh, liberty is what our founders were fighting for, okay? And liberty is not without limits. The liberty is freedom, and this is how I explain it to my students. Liberty, because Sam, uh, John Adams said, liberty must at all hazards be supported. Uh, Samuel Adams said time and time again that liberty is what we, we need to secure, not just simply for ourselves or our future. Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. They never said, give me health, give me health care, give me safety, give me prosperity. It's about liberty. That's the cornerstone of America is about liberty. Liberty has two components, freedom and morality. So we are created, we are born free, which means we are free to do whatever we want which includes, unfortunately, the freedom to lie, to steal, and to murder, right? We, can, we are free to choose to do those things. Now, if we choose to do them in society, then we must suffer the consequences for those choices, but we are free to choose to do them. Liberty is not strictly freedom. Liberty is freedom plus morality, that self-governor that says, hey, I know there are, I am free to do whatever I want, but there are some things that I will not do because they're wrong. What they're missing is the self-governance part. We cannot engage in, in ruling over individuals and maintain liberty. We cannot, main, we cannot maintain the American society. What we have is a, a socialist society then, when governor, government can come in and tell people how to live their lives. Now, Benjamin Franklin explained it this way. Liberty knows no bounds, and, and so, did, so did John Locke, by the way, but John Locke doesn't speak like we do, but so it's a little bit harder to quote him. But liberty knows no bounds other than you cannot harm or control the right of another, right? You don't have a right to control me to keep yourself safe. You have a right to stay home and secure your life. I have a right to engage in my property, in my functions, in my life, in what's necessary to secure my life. If I can't go to work, I can't secure my life. If I can't make a wage, I cannot secure my life. If I must sit around and wait for someone on high to sprinkle crumbs so that I can live, that is not me exerting my right to control and secure my life. So what they're missing is the understanding of what liberty is and the individual nature, meaning the most prevalent, right? So what they're doing is twisting the words. Oh, well, you have to protect my life by staying home. No, my job is not to protect your life. Your job is to protect your life. If you are uh, high risk, if you are uh, um, an elderly person, if you are living in fear of this, it is your right to stay home. It's not my right to make you stay home. It's your right to stay home. If I am not high risk, if I am not unhealthy, if I am 
uh, not in an elderly person or have underlying health conditions, if I am not sick, I have a right to engage in those activities which secure my life. And what they're explaining is really a Marxist principle of the needs of the few outweigh uh, the, the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the individual. I mean, I, it, it's yeah. a Star Trek quote: "The needs of the yeah, many." The needs of the, the needs of the yeah. Right? I think yeah. Spock. That was the Spock the one, right? <laughs> in this, they have sort of flipped it and, and created the understanding of of community in the in the existence of one person. So they don't even get it right. What they're saying is that what they do is they preach democracy in majority rule, but then tell you that one person ought to have the authority to restrict and restrain the, la the, the rights of the masses. If you look at the numbers statistically, and you think about them from a min minor minority majority perspective, we have a small handful of people who are controlling and dictating the rights of a mass. And that, yep. that is not, that is not what our constitution is about. Our constitution does not talk about the, the right of the individual to due process. Or, I'm sorry, the, our constitution talks about the right of the individual to due process. It does not say that if a number of people believe that you don't deserve the right to due process, that that right is gone. That, by the way, is the scariest mentality that we have now, that these number of people can say, uh, we've come together as a collective and determined that your individual rights are not as important as ours. And if people thought about that for just one second, they would realize that that is the collective mentality that made slavery an accepted institution in societies. So what yep. they're really arguing for is the same mentality, the same collective political principle that legalized slavery for many generations. Yeah, that's a powerful analogy. I know that you've got a hard stop, so I don't want to. I don't want to keep you beyond your time. I want to be respectful of your time, but I definitely want to have you back on the show at some point because oh, yeah. I could listen to you talk about the Constitution <laughs> for hours. Um, so, any final thoughts for our audience uh, as they're dealing with this uh, COVID shelter-in-place stuff? I would simply say uh, that now is the time for us to get educated and get activated. We need to understand the basic principles of our rights. We need to understand the, what America is built upon. And, and these COVID restrictions are not what America is built upon. They are the antithesis, the opposite of every American principle. I'll go so far and, and to, to be called radical and tell you that these COVID restrictions on our states and our local governments are absolutely, completely anti-American. And you can quote me on that. I have no problem defending that. And so we we actually have, my husband and I do a, a daily podcast that talks about current events from a constitutional perspective called the Chris Hall Daily Journal. And you can tune in there and, and, and get bite-sized pieces of education relevant to what you're seeing in the news. We also, like I said, have libertyfirstuniversity.com. I have articles at chrisanhall.com that you can get at no cost. 
Uh, our podcasts come at no cost. We work solely by donation. We don't have any membership fees for those kind of things. And I would just encourage people, if what you've heard today is sort of uh, intriguing, interesting, and even times mind-blowing, then I would encourage you to go to our websites and get educated because there are things we can do. You can be contact organizing your communities together to contact your local governments to lift these restrictions. You can be contacting your governor to lift these restrictions. There are certain avenues that we can go by in, in peaceful discord. Uh, and there may be, and I don't, I don't want to get you guys in any trouble, but if history dictates uh, the principles and the actions of America, properly, there may be a time when civil disobedience becomes necessary for the people, and that would be a peaceful civil disobedience, people simply returning back to work, saying, look, I have a yeah. right to feed my family, and you don't have a right to take this business away from me unless you plan on giving me just compensation every single day. Not the promise of some pittance in the future, but right now I have to provide for my employees. I have to provide for my family. And so civil uh, a peaceful civil disobedience has been exercised throughout American history may be the, the solution that we have to look at in the very near future if these people in government will not relinquish the power. We've unfortunately developed an environment where we have, we have now princes and princesses who are just not simply willing to let go. Well, on that sober note, uh, <laughs> thank you for joining. Um, and like I said, I really do want to have you back and talk more about the Constitution. Thank you. Uh, everyone can go to chrisannhall.com plus the podcast and um, Liberty First University URL that Chrisanne mentioned earlier. We'll put all of that information uh, in the show notes below. Again, thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy, especially right now. So I really appreciate your generosity uh, with your time. Well, thank, thank you, Chrisanne. Thank you. I would just simply encourage everybody to do all the letter writing and all the phone calling you ha can because we can stop this as a unified people. <laughs>